loot, swag, bungs, backhanders, whatever you want to call it, there's a lot of funny money about. I'm Richard Brooks. I'm an investigative journalist, and this is the Filthy Luca podcast. Filthy Luca. Once a month, we'll be lifting the money stone and having a look at the nasties wriggling around underneath. The phrase filthy lucre first appears in the King James Bible. It's one of the language's oldest expressions for money with a bit of a smell to it. In the biblical sense, it's mostly aimed at corruptible bishops, but we'll be venturing into all sorts of modern and historical scheming and scamming. I'll be drawing on a couple of decades of experience investigating the seamier side of finance, politics and business. And I'll be joined by some of the best investigators around and some others who've been getting their hands a bit dirty. In the first episode of Filthy Lucre, we looked at the billions of pounds of ill-gotten gains that are sloshing through the UK. So in this episode, which we recorded before Boris Johnson resigned, we're going to talk about sanctions. Who gets to use them? who's on the receiving end of them, and how can they be dodged. I'm joined today by one of the foremost experts in the field, Tom Keating. He's the director of the Centre for Financial Crime and Security Studies at the Royal United Services Institute. That's a role he took up after a decade as an investment banker. So he has experience on both sides of the fence, and that makes him the perfect person to tell us the story of sanctions. The concept of economic warfare is from ancient times. The Greeks were fans. But more recently, sanctions have been used by countries as a tool to do something other than go to war or to try and coerce countries to change their ways of behaviour. So a modern-day example would be the economic pressure put on South Africa at the time of the apartheid regime or the pressure put on Saddam Hussein. In general terms, do you think they work? Are they a good thing? Is it something that we should persist with? There's a huge sort of academic literature on whether they work or not, whether they are effective. Judging effectiveness is challenging. I think they're here to stay. They're always going to be used. We can debate whether they work or not, but they're going to be used nonetheless. In the current situation, the war in Ukraine, I would identify three categories. The most important category is the category of sanction that stops us fueling the Russian economy, stops us fueling the Russian war machine. So that's the purchase of oil, the purchase of coal, the purchase of gas, essentially funneling hundreds of millions of dollars a day into the Russian economy. The second category is sanctioning the economic infrastructure of Russia, freezing the assets of their banks, freezing the assets of the central bank, blocking airspace. And and that's where the West and allies have really focused uh, intently. And then the third is, if you like, the populist sanctions, which are the sanctions on the oligarchs. And these get great headlines. You see the photographs of the boats, the private jets, people occupying houses in London, all that sort of stuff. Whether they're going to have any effect or not, I think, is open to debate. Do you think they will work on their own terms or do you think that they are a necessary step in the sort of escalation of the battle against Putin? Well, I think we can say categorically that they failed because when sanctions were first being discussed back in November, December, January, people like the UK Foreign Secretary were saying that Russia would suffer massive economic consequences if it invaded Ukraine. Well, it did. And so therefore the deterrence factor 
failed. We are inflicting massive economic consequences. The Russian economy is suffering enormously. By the way, the Russian people are suffering enormously. I'm not sure how much Vladimir Putin himself is suffering enormously. So what role are these sanctions going to play in the coming months and years? I think we have to see now sanctions as part of the long game that is going to have to be played. There has been calls to clean up dirty money in London for decades. So in a way, this is an opportunity for the government to sort of catch up and show that they are doing something. So in those three categories you've talked about, in the case of the UK, how much of our business have we shut down with Russia? The financial infrastructure sanctions, you know, UK is central to that because there are so many Russian banks in London and we've put the hammer down on that. Yeah. Oligarch was the 1,000 or however many people it is who've now been sanctioned. But we don't have much skin in the fueling the Russian economy game. The government has said that they will phase out purchase of Russian gas, oil, coal and so on by the end of the year. We're doing our bit. It's a very small percentage of the whole. Let's not forget that the West and the EU are not the only markets that Russia benefits from. There are countries out there like Egypt or India who don't see this war as being anything to do with them. And how does that influence Putin's thinking? Yeah, the Russian economy is looking at a massive reduction in the years ahead. Will it change the calculus of Vladimir Putin? I think that's at the moment very unlikely. And I think this brings us to a bigger question, which is how are the sanctions that are being imposed at the moment going to reshape the global financial system and the global trading system? Historically, trade in a way has been thought of as being if not untouchable, then at least you know, it kind of carries on, particularly the banking sector. You know, money flowed between East and West during the Cold War. There were no problems with it. You know, all these sorts of things continued. Now you're going to think twice. Do I want to really be connected with the US dollar? Because these guys can hurt me big time overnight if I'm not careful. That's the kind of second category of sanctions, the financial infrastructure. How far down the road have we gone on that? We've gone a long way down the road. The sanctions on the Russian central bank were quite a shock to everybody. In the run-up to the conflict, Russia tried to make itself impregnable to sanctions. It built mm. up massive foreign exchange reserves to try to borrow less internationally. And actually what they discovered was one of their immunization mechanisms turned out to be their biggest vulnerability, which was a big stock of dollar-denominated assets. But where does the central bank hold those assets? Well, they hold them at places like my old employer, JP Morgan, in yeah. London or in yeah. New York. And they can be nabbed very easily by the yeah. West when they sit there. But I think in generally in going after the infrastructure of the Russian economy, I would say we're at nine, nine and a half out of 10. There's not much left that we can target other than the banks that are still operating in order to receive the payments for the energy which is flowing from the EU. So, you know, that's something which still needs to be looked at. Yeah. So how much is, it, is that hurting? I mean, you're essentially ripping out the plumbing that facilitates trade between the West and Russia. So I think we can say that the ability of Russia to trade with the West has been significantly reduced. The value of the ruble is basically, it's worth nothing now. So that has had a, had a big impact. But again, to the third category, you know, we yeah. are still pumping all this money into the Russian economy nonetheless. And that's what he needs to buy his weapons and to you know, do whatever he's yeah, going yeah. to do militarily. But I guess the hope with the, the economic hit is that that will bring pressure from Russians generally. The population will put their own pressure on Putin. That clearly has to be one of the hopes, but it looks as though that hope is not coming to pass because, yeah. you know, if you can believe the polls, 80% of people support the war in, in yeah. Ukraine. And of course, many... Obviously, the... you can't believe the polls, but no, that doesn't you... matter. It, it doesn't matter. <laughs> and of course, many of the people that wouldn't support him are actually leaving. If so you're you like... left with a more easily controllable population. Right? Exactly. 
A similar sort of question with the oligarchs. Do we see any effect in terms of their behaviour? I don't think we're seeing any effect. I mean, by the way, their behaviour will change because the way that these sanctions work is that all your assets are frozen. You then negotiate with the government a living allowance. And I heard that they're being allowed two and a half thousand euros or pounds a month. I mean, how can you run your life as an oligarch on two and a half thousand pounds a month? So they will be definitely feeling some personal impact. But I don't suspect these guys have been sitting there waiting to be sanctioned, right? They will have been doing their financial engineering to try and move assets and company ownerships beyond the reach of of sanctions for months, if not years. Well, they had several weeks to see it coming, didn't they? It was was a very good chance it was going to happen. There was this story covered by the FT about a couple of yachts that were owned by shell companies in the British Virgin Islands. And the British Virgin Islands informed Antigua, where the yachts were, that these shell companies were connected with Roman Abramovich. It then transpires that maybe they were connected with Roman Abramovich, but there's been a change in ownership of those shell companies, and therefore those yachts are no longer technically owned by Abramovich. So the kind of shell games that would have been going on over the last 12 months will, I think, be quite active. And I think we'll start to see evidence of that coming out as people dig into some of these company ownerships. We are the Filthy Lucre podcast. This is our patch. What are people doing to evade sanctions, who's helping them? Is it really easy or difficult? I'm afraid it's very easy. What you need is a good lawyer who can reassign the ownership of companies which are currently in your name. If you're clever, you assign it to your friendly cellist or whoever the sorts of people that have been operating with Vladimir Putin are. And of course, your friendly cellist knows jolly well that he's not really the owner or controller of that company at all. The cellist is simply the guardian of your wealth acting as a cutout for you. And this is something which has been going on for decades. By the way, this is not just something that Russians do, right? I mean, the whole point of secrecy jurisdictions is to allow this kind of shell game to be But the Russians have a particular expertise in doing it without even writing it down. There's just kind of understandings. And maybe I'm godfather to your son for good measure while we're at it. You know, there's that sort of connection as well. Of course, these networks grew up during the Soviet era people who were in the KGB together then moved on to positions where they could earn wealth or they could influence who earned wealth i.e going into to politics and so those connections have existed over the last 25 years and have been kind of coordinated to ensure that everyone gets their fair share of the billions so that apparatus is sitting there ready to be used we have an industry that over the same period has become very adept at helping those people do what they want with their money and hide it, essentially. How do you think that industry, the banks, the accountants, the lawyers and so on that have served those people so well, are going to respond now? Because in a way, we're dependent on them, aren't we, for these sanctions to become effective? They're the ones who have to seize the assets. They have to identify them. Do you think they're ready to do that? I think at the moment their hands have been forced because the system has completely frozen. The question is going to be, as the current situation normalises, which I'm afraid it probably will do, when they start to be able to transact again, how will they react? And I think this is where the enablers, as they are called in shorthand, need to finally realise that certain actions are completely inappropriate. A number of the law firms and accountants have in the past hidden behind, well, it's legal to do this. Well, it might be legal to do this, but is it actually appropriate to do that? And what are the consequences 
of helping these individuals move their money beyond the reach of, of the law. I mean, you often hear people saying, don't blame the lawyers, blame the law. I mean, you know, come on. <laughs> no, some, thanks. We'll yeah, blame the lawyers. Exactly. Also, in the past, the track record is actually of even worse than that. Banks have colluded in sanctions evasions. HSBC, for example, in 2012, got a huge fine in the US, partly for deliberately helping clients evade Iranian sanctions. There is certainly great respect in the financial industry for people who can come up with structures that navigate their way through the landscape of obstacles that are put in your way by laws and infuriating things like regulations. Great idea. What a brilliant way. Yes, move the cash flows via this country and that country and then, yeah, no problem. So that kind of culture, if you like, is in the DNA of many of these organisations. Because they want to solve their clients' problems. It's exactly right, because at the end of the day, it's a client-focused industry. You don't get paid by saying to a client, oh, sorry, I can't solve your problem. You get paid handsomely by saying, I can solve it, and this is how I'm going to do it. And as part of that, you will perhaps have a chat with a QC who gives you an opinion and says, well, if I squint and look sideways enough, I can see how this would thread the needle through the law as it is today. It doesn't give a lot of hope, really, does it, for seizing assets and freezing things, you know, making the oligarchs we want to suffer economically suffer. It doesn't, but it poses a question as well, which is, well, what if you applied that financial engineering brain set to the national security priority, which is identifying the dirty assets uh, and then freezing them? To be fair to the the UK government, which I would often criticise, this is one of the things they've tried to do, co-opt the private sector into their security mission. But there are many sectors, lawyers and accountants, real estate agents, for example, who definitely haven't got the memo yet to the extent they need to. Well, some of the figures that um, I looked at and reported in Private Eye suggest the record isn't all that great in terms of the value of assets frozen, even after the 2018 round of sanctions following the Salisbury attacks. There's still only 40 million or so of assets frozen. When we look at the billions that have come into the UK, owned by people connected to Putin, that's next to nothing. The track record of asset freezing across the range of sanctions regimes that the UK has is dismal. I mean, it's worth bearing in mind that a lot of the sanctions that are issued by the UK on things like, for example, human rights or anti-corruption actually are on individuals who don't have any connection with the UK at all. Obviously, now, with the current sanctions, we do have hundreds of billions being frozen by the UK, reflecting the fact that we're going after assets held by Russian banks, and those banks have major operations in London, along with the individuals and their yachts and private jets. Do we have any idea of how much has actually been frozen in the UK since the Ukraine invasion? It's several hundred billions. I think at one point there was a number floating around of sort of 250 billion. I'm sure it's more than that in pounds. uh, And that's the assets of Russian banks operating in the UK. That's correct. That's their UK assets, That's not their worldwide assets. I mean, that is quite a lot of money. It is a lot of money. And the central bank itself has had the best part of three, four hundred billion dollars frozen. So, I mean, the numbers are eye-watering this time around, for sure. So the modern form of sanctions that we see being applied against Russia, when did they really take shape? The recent history of sanctions, of what they like to call smart sanctions, targeting particular individuals and organisations, really grew out of the period following the first Gulf War. 
at that time, sanctions were used in a very dumb way. And I think there was a lot of focus on the fact that the population of Iraq really suffered. It wasn't sort of Saddam and his cronies who were suffering. Sanctions during the 2010 and after period were ramped up against Iran by the West. The recent round of sanctions clearly did have an effect because they came to the negotiating table and a deal around their nuclear ambitions was agreed. That's a, a positive example, if you like, for the use of sanctions. The other example in, in recent history are the sanctions on North Korea. But, of course, as we see on a monthly basis, North Korea is still testing missiles. That's another really good example of where sanctions hit the wrong people. You know, I had the opportunity to visit North Korea in 2010, and it's like going back to the Stone Age in terms of the way people are living. Meanwhile, you know, the, the leader is enjoying his fine wines yeah. and his Mercedes cars. North Korea is an interesting case study because it, even though there's unanimity in passing of the sanctions at the United Nations Security Council, it shows how ineffective sanctions can be when you have an easy evasion route. And of course, North Korea sits next to China and China is yeah. a, a very effective evasion route for the North Koreans. Do you think sanctions are just something for the West? Do you think they will remain something just for the West? Or do you think that we can hope that countries like China will come on board, introduce sanctions of their own that might complement what the West does and therefore work maybe as a kind of pincer movement? I mean, I think in the current situation, when we talk about the West, actually, we're more talking about the G7 because places yeah. like Japan and Singapore and others are on board. Most of the conversation about sanctions tends to focus on financial sanctions, banking sanctions. Of course, we saw sanctions of a type by China on the US during the Trump era with, if not trade embargoes, then um, tariffs and so on. I mean, tariffs are a form of sanction trying to change the nature of the financial relationship between countries. So sanction type levers, I think, are, are used by many countries. And, and what I would expect in the future, frankly, I mean, I have this kind of vision of two walled gardens between East and West, a sort of a Chinese dominated walled garden where the US dollar doesn't exist, and they're trading with each other in that walled garden, and then a Western walled garden where the US dollar continues to be dominant. Peak globalization when it comes to finance was a long time ago. And now we are increasingly balkanizing on trade, on finance. And yes, you will see sanctions appearing alongside that balkanization. Do those separate walled gardens make it easier for sanctioned countries to escape the full effects simply by choosing one that is being a bit warmer towards them? You can be sure that there's a, a unit in the People's Bank of China or the Ministry of Finance in Beijing looking very closely at the impact of Western sanctions on Russia and thinking, how do we make sure that we are never exposed to that level of economic coercion? And the thing about sanctions is that once you use them, immediately their power starts to dissipate because others will look on and try and make sure that they don't fall into the trap that, in this case, Russia has fallen into and suffered accordingly. Back onto our current case, the Russia, the evasion routes there. So the way evasion could work is that Indian banks might say, well, we're not going to facilitate payments for India to buy Russian oil because we don't want to be sanctioned by the United States. You might then have a country like China, which is exporting to Russia stuff that Russia can't get from the West anymore, for example. So China is now owed money by Russia. So China says to India, don't worry, don't pay the money to Russia, pay it to me. So no one there is in a yeah. way breaching sanctions. The financial engineering works perfectly. That's the kind of thing we'll start to see as the sort of financial infrastructure adapts to the sanctions. 
it's almost impossible to seal a country off from trade with sanctions. What I think you have to try and do is what the Americans call maintain the effectiveness of sanctions. So as you start to see evasion activity taking over, you know, it's like whack-a-mole. You need to shut that down. You then need to look and see what happens next. You need to shut that down. That'll be what we see as the year progresses, I think. On the particular subject of oil exports, for example, there are traders in the market who have a long record of cashing in on sanctions by finding the kind of techniques that evade the sanctions. They step in the middle. That seems to be happening already. Is that something that you're seeing? One of the basic tenets of something like trade-based money laundering is, yes, disguising the origin of a good or the destination of a good in order to avoid sanctions. This is a tool that will be out in spades right now. In the UK, we might be buying products from Russia without realising it because actually we think it's coming from China or we think it's coming from the UAE or we think it's coming from India. But of course, those countries are acting as a dogleg in the trade process. So all these techniques will be being deployed right now, I'm absolutely certain. The system has currently frozen, but it won't stay frozen forever. And I'm afraid commercial organisations will try and figure out you know, where is the edge of the law when it comes to sanctions. And we hear people talking about self-sanctioning, right? So oil companies didn't have to pull out of Russia, but they sort of made the decision on moral grounds, on sort of you know, governance grounds. Or PR grounds. I'm certain if you want to be really cynical. No, no, absolutely. And and those companies that tried to stay in got a barrage of negative PR and then suddenly saw the light and decided to change their tune. But I think as time goes on, those companies will start to figure out, is this a market that's too big to ignore? I mean, I guess we all hope that they don't make that decision. But buying off an intermediary and saying, well, I bought the oil from a non-sanctioned country. I mean, how was I to know that it came from Russia? Those are sort of the convenient excuses that people can roll out. And there are the oil traders that have made fortunes from essentially helping people to evade sanctions on South Africa, on Iran and Iraq. And they seem to be standing ready to do the same here. Is there anything we can do to stop that kind of thing? Well, if I was sitting in the UK sanctions unit or I was sitting in OFAC in the US, I would be visiting these people and making it very clear to them that the moment we get a whiff of you doing anything like this, the consequences are going to be immense, leaving people under no illusion that we know what they could do and we are monitoring what they are doing. And if they end up getting into that kind of game, then it's going to be very bad news for them. And I think that's what we haven't done in the past. In my experience, it's not the company necessarily, it's then individuals in those organisations. Do you as an individual understand just how cataclysmic it would be if you thought, oh, well, you know, just redirecting one tanker of oil isn't going to make a difference. That requires a certain level of enforcement. Are we equipped for that level of enforcement? There's something like 30-odd people in the Treasury Sanctions Unit, which doesn't really get you very far if you've got to monitor quite a lot of detail. And don't look across the channel because I don't think you'll get much beyond one or two people. I mean, the, the enforcement issue is something that... In Europe, broadly, we are extremely weak on. So the Office of Financial Sanctions Implementation in HM Treasury, which is sort of the the mallet that the government should be using on enforcement, the Chancellor said that there are 40-odd people in that unit and that unit's going to be doubled in size. Now, I've seen the adverts that they've now put out publicly Mm -hmm. online. And yes, they are trying to double in size, but I don't think they're increasing the expertise. If you're going to offer... 24, 25 grand to someone to come and work in the sanctions enforcement unit, you're not going to get a lawyer or investigator. 
it is the private sector that we rely on to make sure sanctions are actually being effective. And if you're not going in and checking that the sanctions are being properly enforced by these private sector actors, then we can kind of assume that they're not being enforced. It begins to look a little bit like the situation we were in before the pandemic, the unpreparedness, desperately scratching around, not for PPE, but for people who can look at sanctions. In the first weeks of the sanctions campaign, I had a number of conversations with EU embassies in London, and the question they were all asking is, we thought the UK were really good at sanctions, and yet they're really struggling to get going. Now, James Cleverly, the minister, then took a shot at me on Twitter for having said that. And he said, oh, we've been liaising with the G7 and all the rest of it, to which my response was, well, yeah, great, that's at a high level. But how many lawyers did you hire? How many evidence packages did you get ready? Were we really ready to go? Or did we run around desperately once the worst happened? The Foreign Secretary has been nothing if not bullish on sanctions. But the talk is not actually what's needed right now. It's action. Because at the end of the day, what we're trying to do is to crush, bluntly, the Russian economy, starve the Putin war machine of finance, and do the right thing for the people of Ukraine. Going back to the earlier history around the First World War, Woodrow Wilson, the US president, described it as economic suffocation. Is Putin still breathing very easily, or are we making him at least a bit wheezy? There's much, much more we need to do. I would say at the moment we're at four or five out of ten in terms of what's been done and, and how effective we're being. Until the European Union is willing to get off its Russian hydrocarbon addiction, we're not going to have the impact that the Foreign Secretary and others would like to see. Yeah. And over here, we need, I guess, a sea change in the attitude of our government and our professions so that we're no longer enabling these people to loot Russia and sustain Putin's regime and that we're reversing some of the damage we've caused. The UK needs to get away from this very well-documented position of being the central problem and actually start becoming the central solution. At the end of the day, we are a financial crossroads in the UK. There's not much that happens financially meaningful around the world that doesn't touch the UK in some shape or form, either London or the overseas territories, the crown dependencies, you know, the, the massive financial infrastructure the UK stewards for the world. But for the last 25 years at least, we've chosen to ignore the negatives that come with that what I would want to see is that change fundamentally, not just simply flash in the pan because there's a war in Europe, because sanctioning people does not lead to systemic change. That's just a kind of momentary bit of gratification. What yeah. we need is the laws to change, and we need lawyers, accountants and others who are enabling this to realise that it's wrong, and if they do it, then they go to jail, frankly. We need to need sanctions less in the future, I guess. I mean, it's a great point, because actually issuing sanctions is almost an admission of failure, right? You know, yeah. We haven't managed yeah. to deal with human rights abusers and people who are corrupt or North Korea and its missiles. So, well, we're going to have to use sanctions. Yeah. We could even look at evidence of the Gulf, Saudi Arabia and so on, where perhaps we're already failing on that front. We certainly are, right? I mean, and we're in this ridiculous situation now where we're having to choose, you know, which authoritarian regime do we actually want to do deals with because we want their oil. I mean, when you hear that the Americans are talking to the Venezuelans, who they've been at daggers with for a number of years, mm. and you see... Boris Johnson's shaking hands with the Saudis. That doesn't look great, but at the mm. same time, at the moment, we still need their help with so energy. maybe the lesson is that prevention is always better than cure. We need a much better preventative attitude and effort to corruption. We've chosen, I think, historically to hold our noses and do deals. I think, actually, we should be smelling 
who we're doing deals with and making decisions on that basis. I hope that Liz Truss, Boris Johnson, every banker, lawyer and accountant in London has listened to you, Tom. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Thanks to Tom Keating for leading us through the great game of sanctions and revealing some of the ways in which they are, and more often aren't, working. You've been listening to Filthy Luca. Join us next time as we meet whistleblower and copper-turned-anti-corruption enforcer Martin Woods. He'll be giving us a sometimes hair-raising insider's perspective on how some of the world's biggest financial institutions dodge the financial regulations they're supposed to live by.